Well, good morning. If you are just joining us for the first time in a little while, or um, if maybe this is your first Sunday, we are in the middle, not in the middle, we're in the second week of a five-month sermon series on the book of Romans, uh, unofficially titled, The God Who Does Not Fail. Uh, And uh, we are going to jump into a particular passage today that you heard read for you. But as a way of introducing, is my mic on? Okay. Yeah, now it's definitely on. All right, man, we're batting 250 today. <laughs> Yikes. All right, uh, to introduce the theme for the sermon, I want to do a little uh, book report for you. There's a professor at Princeton, her name is Ellen Cherry, and she wrote a book 25 years ago called By the Renewing of Your Minds. And the book starts with a deceptively simple premise. Knowing God can change you. Not every time, not automatically, But in the right circumstances, in healthy settings, drawing close to God and practicing the Christian faith can make an unmistakable positive difference in your life. You might think, "Uh, okay, that's a book? That seems pretty simple. But, you know, Ellen Cherry is in a very particular world, the world of contemporary theology. And one of the things that she argues in the book is that contemporary theologians are too obsessed with whether or not talk about God can be considered real knowledge at all. That it refers to anything objective or true out there. And she wants to reframe how we think about faith. And this is, these are my, this is my language, not hers. But she basically wants to say, we should be thinking about church like a rehabilitation clinic, not a philosophy classroom. Where we come as the people of God and draw close to God because knowing God can be healing. It can be restorative. Her favorite word, kind of a $5 term, it can be salutary. And one of the uh, things that she does as she kind of lays out her method is she traces the similarities in the pastoral and medical arts about how knowledge is utilized. She traces the similarities between the way us Christians and doctors utilize knowledge. I'm going to do just a few of them. For one, this is pretty obvious, but both disciplines rely on bodies of knowledge, right? Uh, No pun intended. The human body in pharmacology or the Bible in creeds, you know, fixed bodies of knowledge. But both doctors and people in our world rely on judgment. If you go to a doctor's office, they ask you certain questions about what is going on. And the treatment that they offer is based on their ability to figure out what is going on. And within a range of acceptable options, they prescribe one course of treatment. There's a lot of judgment involved. Both Christianity and medicine depend on faith. I read a study on uh, NPR's website this week that looked at uh, treatment for migraines. And these doctors did this one particular study where they gave patients in the midst of a migraine attack a placebo that they thought was a widely used migraine drug. And what they found is that that placebo reduced their pain roughly as much as when they took the real drug thinking it was a placebo. So how you feel about your course of treatment, whether or not you trust your doctor, Whether you commit to what your doctor prescribes has a lot to do with how effective the treatment is. And finally, final similarity, there's a degree of mystery involved. And of course we know this about faith. It's hard to 
explain exactly how prayer works, but if you just see it work a few times, you believe that it does. But the same is true in medicine. You know, some of the most widely used and effective medicines today, like Tylenol or penicillin, are not adequately explained, at least not to scientists' um, satisfaction. Now, don't send me bad emails. Respond to this illustration in good faith. I am not saying that medicine is a sham or that you should relate to me like you relate to your doctor. That is not my point. My point is that we intuitively celebrate the and trust medicine. But we think of faith as it operates in this completely different sphere, a subjective sphere. Oh, it's, it's cool for some people, but you know, other people have equally valid means of becoming more whole. And what Ellen Cherry is pointing out is like, well, that depends on your frame of reference. Why wouldn't knowing God be a viable means of human excellence? Why are we so tongue-tied when imagining that the best way to be a human being is to be reconciled to the God in whose image we are made? Why wouldn't knowing God change how you think and act? So I want to work through this text, Romans 1, 8 through 15, under a very simple header. God changes lives. And I have three things to say. God changed their lives. God changed Paul's life. And God changes our lives. So first, God changed their lives. This text from Romans, it might be helpful to take it out if you have it. Um, I know it's like musical chairs with all the pieces of paper we give you. But um, Paul's letter to the Romans is uh, its just that. It is a letter. And I, I learned a very fancy word this week. You ready? Epistolatory, or of letters. There are epistolatory conventions that were operative in the first century, and Paul follows a lot of those conventions in this letter. And one of those conventions was this idea of giving thanks and wishing well. You know, what do we say today? Thoughts and prayers? Same idea. In all of Paul's letters, he gives thanks to God for his readers, and he wishes them well. But Paul, because he's, I don't know, Paul, does these very intense Christianized versions of these conventions. And here's what he says to open our text. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, what does that mean? Your faith is being reported all over the world. Just think about this for a second. This is extraordinary. The letter to the book of Romans was written 20 years after Jesus died. So there are lots of people alive at the time of the writing of the book of Romans who met Jesus, the ordinary carpenter Jesus. And within 20 years of Jesus's life, 1,500 miles from where Jesus lived, there are people in the capital of the planet Earth worshiping that Jesus at risk of their own lives. Think about how difficult communication and travel was in that day by our standards. 20 years, there is a community of people who are refusing to bow the knee to Caesar and are saying, Jesus, you know that Jesus that like people ate meals with? He's God. He is not just a God or a divine figure. He is the Lord. It is unbelievable just from a completely natural frame of reference. But I actually don't think that in and of itself explains why Paul is so thankful for the Romans. I think Paul is thankful for the Romans and so encouraged 
by what is happening in that city, it's, it's not just because there is a church there, but it's because God is changing lives in the city of Rome. And I know this, or I believe this, because of how Paul opens his other letters when he follows those conventions of thanksgiving. He, oh, he doesn't just talk about, oh, these people have the right religious ideas, hallelujah. He says these people, their lives are being transformed by the living God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, for example, he says, We always thank God for all of you as we remember before God your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Work, labor, endurance, not ideas, not worldview, action, embodied stuff. God is changing people's lives. And Paul says, I see, I, I hear that that's happening in Rome. And the people of God everywhere know about this. And they are being encouraged. They are being inspired. They are thankful. Because what that shows is that Jesus is risen indeed. That Jesus is alive. And not just in some localized, phenomenological way in Jerusalem. But half the world away in Rome. People's lives are being transformed. I am so thankful about what God is doing in your midst. It reinforces my conviction about the God that we worship. God was changing their lives. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Second thing is that God changed Paul's life. Look with me at verse 14. I am obligated, he says, both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I want to I work with this idea of obligation. Who is Paul obligated to? Why does he feel obligated to them? And I want you to notice first, Paul does not say, I am obligated to God. I am not indebted to God. I don't have this sense of compulsion as it relates to my relationship with God. I'm obligated, I'm indebted to other people. Now, that's, that's weird. Paul has never met these people. He didn't loan them any money. He didn't you know, enter into an agreement with them that they are now asking him to fulfill. But Paul says, I'm obligated to you. Why is that? What is creating that sense of obligation? Well, I think we can tell, but you just have to do a little bit of work. Um, in verse 5, which you did not hear, it's the very beginning of the letter, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, I received grace. Through Jesus Christ, Paul says, I received the free, unmerited, unearned gift of God's love and protection and care. Now, grace, as I've already said, by definition, is unearned. You don't work for grace. If you work for grace, it ceases to be grace, right? And grace, if I give Peter a free gift, no strings attached, and I say to him, hey, I don't want you to pay me back. This is just this, a gift. And Peter says, cool, I'll definitely pay you back. I'm like, you're not getting it. This is a free gift, right? So I don't think receiving grace from God creates an obligation between us and God. Because then it's not grace. The gift of grace is just that. There's no strings attached. But this is what's interesting. Paul says, grace does obligate me. It just obligates me to people, not to God. Now, why is that? Why does receiving this free gift of God's love, the, the, the wave after wave of God's love that breaks upon us, why does that bind and obligate 
me to other people. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because God changes lives. When your life begins to be mended and rehabilitated and restored freely, just by virtue of God's love and commitment to you, it creates in you a desire to share that good news with other people. And we have all had this experience with television shows and podcasts and restaurants, right? This was so amazing. You have to try it. It will change your life. But look, we are not talking about Marvel IP. We're talking about new creation, life out of death, the righting of all the wrongs in the world. But look, of course, that sense of obligation is just not strongly felt by most of us, right? I mean, let's just be honest. You are exactly 37 times more likely to recommend a television show this week than to tell someone about Jesus. Just factually, right? Okay, I'm getting a lot of, I'm getting a lot of bad stares. I kind of just think that's true, and I think that's true for me too. So why is it that Paul was felt so obligated? Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. We've received all that Paul has received. Why don't we have that sense of obligation too, as well? Well, I think, I think for a lot of us, it's because we are not experiencing the power of grace in the way that Paul did. I think that for a lot of us, Christianity kind of is an outlook or like a worldview, one way of framing the world among lots of other equally meaningful ways of framing the world. And I know we don't think like that consciously, but functionally, that's how it works for a lot of us. Or Christianity is like, it's a lifestyle. It's a set of practices that we found salutary for ourselves, but not necessarily meaningful or normative for other people, right? And, you know, and... And of course, it does feel wrong to just push your agenda on someone else. But a lot, what I want to say is that is a category error. Because when we're talking about our faith, we're not talking about a worldview or an agenda or a lifestyle. We're talking about something that makes you whole, that heals, that has power to save. You know, the, and the difference between those two things, those two ways of, of framing faith, are we talking about an outlook here? Are we talking about the power that saves you? That, that, be, that has become very clear to me as I've had lots of friends. I'm not talking about people who go to this church. I'm talking about friends that I have elsewhere who are very in the midst of the, the language that is used is uh, deconstruction. People talk about, you know, their faith is being deconstructed. And that can mean a lot of different things. I'm not, I'm not trying to police language here, okay? But sometimes, sometimes deconstruction is good because what it means is I'm asking hard questions, questions that I've had for a long time that I've kind of been told to not ask. I want to ask those questions. That's a good thing. It's also a good thing if you see faith kind of in this mixed marriage with some political ideology and you're like, I don't like that. That's a good thing, you know? But what I'm talking about is, well, let's put it this way. Truth is not a set of prepositions that we can break down and reconstruct like Lincoln Logs. Truth is not something that is inert. Truth is a person. And truth is a person that can bring freedom and joy into an otherwise sad and constrained world. Truth is a person that can make you sane. And look, I'll just speak for myself. 
I don't have the luxury of deconstructing the one thing that I know will make my life manageable. It's just not a privilege I feel like I have. And so, um, again, I am not, we are all on different journeys of faith. I am not in any way trying to like criminalize if people are having seasons of doubt. That's not my point at all. What I'm trying to say is that when faith is a power that saves, that makes a very real, very concrete life and death difference in your life, I think Paul's sense of obligation becomes more explicable and maybe more uh, imitatable. You know, before Paul received grace, he was a violent, disagreeable man. And his hatred for other people was fueled by what today in 21st century we would call a sense of cultural or ethnic superiority. Paul had very defined ideas about who was worthy of dignity, who was worthy of good treatment, who was worthy of God's love, and who was not. And Jesus changed all of that for Paul, completely turned his world around. And Paul was so intent on other believers having the same experience where God's love becomes a universal thing that he is he's obligated to share the gospel with people in Rome. I'm not doing a very good job introducing this, but as you'll see, as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, one of the main horizontal themes, like person-to-person themes of the book, is God's desire for people from very different backgrounds, very different perspectives, coming together in a healthy, robust, unified way. And that theme is hinted at in our passage by Paul's use of the phrase Greeks and non-Greeks. Did you guys catch that? Typically, when Paul refers to the people that he hopes to reach with the gospel, he uses this blanket term, the Gentiles. You guys know what Gentiles, you know, non-Jews. But here, he uses this specific term, Greeks and non-Greeks. The actual word for non-Greeks in like the Greek New Testament, some of our Bible translations even have this, is barbarians. So what's the significance of Paul using that term? Well, that term, that division, Greeks and barbarians, reflected a division in the ancient world between two sets of people. On the one hand, you had people who had been traditioned into elite culture, <laughs> elite Greco-Roman culture, right? And that's not an ethnic designation in the way we think of it now, but it functioned like that. They were the people that were on top, who were wise and civilized and sophisticated. And then there was a whole group of lots of other kinds of people who were barbarians, who were uncivilized, who were at best backwards, at worst corrupt and perverse. That term, barbarians, you guys know what a, an onomatopoeia is? It's a word that looks like the sound it makes. Well, barbarian is an onomatopoeia because in Greek ears, foreign languages sounded coarse and uncivilized, like bar, 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 bar. So barbarians, like we would say now, it's like coded language. Uh, a commentator that I read this week said, barbarian is almost like the N-word in the Greco-Roman world because it was not just a, uh, a neutral ethnic term. It had very specific connotations. And so Paul's saying, you guys, Jesus completely upended my sense of worth and superiority. And I see this community and the city that surrounds it being divided, not along the same Jew-Gentile lines, but the same dynamic. There's the in-group and the out-group, the Greeks and the non-Greeks. God 
has totally changed my perspective on who is worthy of his love. And I think God wants to do the same thing here. That's why I am so eager or obligated to share the gospel with you. All right, let's, let's zone out. I feel like I'm getting into the weeds. I'm starting to say two things. God changed the lives of the Romans, and God changed Paul's life in a very specific way, and he is eager or obligated to share that news with them. Final point, how does God change our lives? That's what I want to talk about in this third point, one of the mechanisms that God uses to bring about change in our lives. Uh, Verse 11 says this, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. What's Paul saying there? He's saying two things. First, I want to come to you, Romans, because God has graced me with a kind of a unique insight into the gospel. And if I share that with you, I know that's going to make you strong. That's going to establish you in your faith. Second thing, but, 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 there is no one-sided exchange in the kingdom of God. Whenever we're together, there's mutuality, there's reciprocity. I share my gifts, you share your gifts, and in that exchange, together, we are strengthened. So obviously, some people know more than other people about the Bible. Duh. But in the community of Jesus Christ, everyone has something to give. Everyone has a gift to share. And it's only when everyone feels empowered and comfortable sharing the unique gifts that God has given them, that the community truly flourishes. How does God change us? I think one of the primary ways God changes us is not through, I mean, (laughs) never mind, is through life together. You know, that Bonhoeffer phrase. It is when we feel comfortable and encouraged to share our unique gifts. It's in the midst of that thing that God is truly at work changing us. St. Peter puts it like this in his letter. Each of you, just imagine yourself as the recipient of this letter. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I love that phrase, various forms, because what that means is this. How many people in this room right now? 80? I have no idea. There's 400 people here, online people. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, there, let's say there's 80 people here. Um, you know, we are all here to worship the Lord Jesus, to receive from the Lord's table. And all you 80 individuals are a unique steward of the grace of God in a particular varied form. You all have something to contribute. You all have something to give. And when we are, again, willing or are, are eager You know, if you receive the gift of encouragement, you you receive the gift of sharing an encouraging word to someone who is discomforted or sorrowful. It's a gift to be able to encourage someone like that. God gives you that gift. I remember, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, I remember a year, a year and a half ago at our parish retreat, Cassidy Ingle, in one of our times of open prayer and discussion, prayed for a hunger for the things of God in our church. And she prayed with what I would label the gift of faith. There was a a conviction that God was actually going to answer that prayer. And I think for me, and I think for a lot of people there, that was like one of the highlights of the retreat. It It was a gift 
that she was able to bring that to us and it enriched everyone there. So some of us might have the gift of faith where we can pray for healing or for provision and like, you know, believe it's going to happen. Or the gift of a prophetic utterance, which is not, you know, where the stock market will be in three weeks, but the gift to be able to remind people of their future in the Lord Jesus. One of the primary ways that God changes us is through this ministry that we have to one another. Therefore, how important is it that we understand ourselves, not as atomized individuals who come for a spiritual recharge, but as members of a community who have unique gifts to leverage for the edification of all. And final thing, I think this is a particularly resonant and important reminder right now, 14 months into the pandemic, because for ways that are appropriate, we have all been not particularly, I don't want to say you're not concerned, but we just haven't been thinking that much about this wider community. You know, we've been like sheltering in place and trying not to get COVID, you know, and that's fair enough. But as we continue to come out of this, it is vital that you recover a vision of coming to church, not just because you like the content, but because we need you. If you are a member of this community, I hope and pray that you have a sense of belonging here that's thick and meaningful enough that you're compelled to come because other people might be relying on the gift of encouragement that you could bring or the gift of faith that you could bring or the gift of leadership. You know, I gave Paul Van Allen the gift of stacking chairs at the beginning of this service because we didn't put out enough. It was amazing. If Paul wouldn't have been here, we might have been in trouble, right? We all have, <laughs> Paul is much more gifted than that. My point is, is that we all have unique ways to serve in the moment. And we need to recover, or, you know, cultivate a, a sense of, okay, I, I want to be here because other people might be relying on me. That is a, a very important ingredient of how the New Testament defines the church. That I think is, can be challenging for us to, to remain convinced of. Okay, let me pray. God, thank you for this uh, word. We thank you, Lord, that this kind of pro forma introduction and prayer to Romans contains this profound truth that you, Lord, were at work in that community changing people's life. You were at work in Paul's life, completely upending his sense of value. And um, Lord, you are at work right now in our lives, in this church. And so, Lord, I pray, um, hopefully with a measure of faith, for the release of spiritual gifts in our midst. I pray, Lord, for gifts of encouragement, gifts of administration, double portion of that, Lord, uh, for gifts of leadership, for gifts of faith and healing and gifts, the prophetic gifts. Lord, all the ways that you want us to flourish as your people, as a little outpost of your kingdom, I pray, Lord, give us that which we need to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.